0: Welcome to Tipping the Balance. I'm Katie Hickey, your host, and today we hear from Helen Boyle. Helen is a full-time police officer, an author, and also the co-founder of IX Global. Helen has been through a lot of personal difficulties, both linked to physical and mental health. Helen takes us through the journey of her life where she says the first 20 years were close to perfect and the next 20 years seem to go from one major trauma to another. This left Helen with severe PTSD but she is now in a place where she feels content and happy with life. Helen shares how her life events have shaped her and what she's learned along the way. Helen has taken control of her own healing on several occasions and we discuss how one size does not fit all when it comes to recovery from personal and mental health trauma. Helen is truly an inspirational woman and I know you will really enjoy hearing her tell her story. Please remember to subscribe to the show and share with someone who you know will enjoy hearing these uplifting and inspirational stories. Welcome, Helen welcome to tipping the balance i know that you have had a wealth of life experience um you've been through a lot of personal kind of trials and tribulations um health issues and here you are still still going still fighting strong actually you're so inspirational, you know, starting your own business. I know that you're still working with the police. It's just, you are, you're fascinating. (laughs) I find it fascinating. So um, I think, would you want to just introduce yourself and say kind of, uh, you know, where you're at now and then we can delve into some other stuff?
1: I find it really strange when people say that oh you're inspirational because I just that's not how I feel that's not who I feel I am but people do say it quite often so but I'm glad I hope I hope I do inspire people um so yeah like you say I'm currently co-founder of IX Global which has been going i think we officially launched just around a year ago and um the business has just gone from strength to strength over the last 12 months and you know it's been difficult it's It's absolutely a roller coaster. From where I was 12 months ago, it's absolutely amazing. And uh, like you say, I still am a full-time police officer as well. Um, Through choice, you know, the business would allow me to stop working. Um, I I don't need the police income, but whilst I can still do both, that's what I want to do because I want to pay my mortgage off and, you know, be comfortable. So whilst I can do both, that's what I'm going to do. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's nice to be in a position of feeling quite content at the moment after, you know, the last 20 years, um, it's a nice feeling.
0: And do you want to talk a little bit about your role with the police? Cause that in itself is, is fascinating. Yeah.
1: So I'm, um, I'm a family, what they call a family liaison officer, um, which means you'll, you'll hear if if somebody has been murdered or, or a very, very serious offence where people are likely to die, uh, you'll hear in the in the press that they'll say especially a, a trained officers are with the family and, and that would be me. So we call family liaison officers. And basically, if somebody is murdered, I will be called out to that family. Now, sometimes I arrive at the family before they even know that their loved one has been murdered. Sometimes I arrive after they know. It just depends on how the person who's died has died. So um, I then stay with that family generally right through to a conclusion, which is hopefully at the end of a trial. Um, So that can take 12, 18 months for somebody to be taken to court and actually tried for murder. So it's a very, very challenging role. You are thrown into a family's life at the worst possible time ever. They don't know you from Adam. You have to build up a very quick relationship. You've got to very quickly think on your feet. And, you know, um, you're also there as a police officer because a lot of the time, somebody who's been murdered it's a lot of the time it's a family member and that murderer could actually be there in that room and so you not only are you looking after the welfare of the family but you're also watching and um you know just just seeing what what happens so uh it's it's extremely challenging Mm. Uh, it's mentally draining the hours are very very long especially within the first few days Uh, you know I could be at work for 20 hours and then go home for a few hours and then back out at the family again Um, you see the most horrific sights that you couldn't even make up in your mind Um, because I see everything I I generally go would go to the murder scene Mm. I would see the person who's died, I would sometimes go to the post-mortem. Um, and then obviously it's he, extremely um, harrowing mm-hmm. having to relay those details to the to the family. It's not a nice job, but at the end of the process, it's very rewarding. And every family that I've ever been involved with, I am friends with now,
0: yeah.
1: you know, and I I still speak to on a regular basis um
0: and how many families would you be supporting at any one time is it like one at a time or you might have lots of families at the same time um I would
1: probably only do maybe three a year okay yeah so I have I have had two on the go at the same time and I've been running from courtroom to courtroom you know on a couple of occasions when it's just been coincidence we've both been in court at the same time I mean
0: how do you cope with that because I just can as you say it's quite harrowing Mm. Get any support from police force or how do you cope with the demands of that job it's been
1: really difficult um the police would probably say that we are supported. However, in reality, as you can imagine, it's a constant go, go, go. That kind of takes a back seat. I don't think I've ever once been asked, am I OK? Do I need to see anyone? <laughs> you know, um, and, and I've, I've suffered severe PTSD myself, so I don't take on as much anymore. Uh, on the murder side as I used to, just because I, I can't, my mind just kind of said, this needs to stop um, when I develop PTSD. Um, so I don't do as much anymore. It's been difficult and it's very, very hard to, to deal with. And I think as a police officer, you can go for quite a long time and then all of a sudden it will hit you. Mm. Um I will look I look back and wish I had never joined the police you know it was probably one of the worst decisions I ever made because of what it's done to me mentally Um,
0: and the PTSD that you've hmm. experienced is that through just what you've seen through from your work as a family liaison officer
1: I think it's uh it was kind of the what tipped me over the edge in, at the end. My PTSD, I think, has been building up for about 20 years through the different traumas I've had. But I think once I started doing the family liaison officer job and seeing the victims, um, that eventually, that was what really tipped me over the edge. And, and I was in Florida with my family on holiday. I'm um, trying to think of the year, but I can't, can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, maybe around 2017. Hmm. And um, I was stood on the balcony uh, in, in the resort. And all of a sudden, it was like a, a video screen came down in front of my eyes. So it was, I could see through it, but it was a screen and it was a murder scene that I'd been in and and i've got quite a photographic memory which doesn't you know it it can be a, a help and a hindrance but i was in in a scene that i'd been in uh, where a poor girl was was murdered and instead of her lying there it was my daughter and i couldn't stop this video from playing and i knew then i was ill um i i, I knew i had to just that something just was really wrong. Uh, and that has, that's carried on the, the video replays. They're not as bad now, but for a long time, it would just start and I could be anywhere. And I, and I could, I would, could be speaking to you and you would have no idea that in front of me, I was looking at a murder scene and it was always a murder scene that was there. Um, and, and, I tried to get help for the PTSD for a long, long time, and it was just shocking—really shocking. Really shocking. Um, I'd, it must have been 2017 because I'd just lost my dad, and it, it was in like the July, August that this started. And uh, six months later, I'd, I'd, I must have seen four or five psychologists psychiatrists and every single one that I'd been referred to said to me after I kind of told them everything like going over and over the, the 20 years which is hard enough at the time it was hard enough to do that every one of them said this is too complex for me i need to refer you to somebody else and and i ended up with this one woman who just was having me do these crazy things and it, nothing was helping and I think a lot of that is because I've got quite a strong will and a strong mind, and I I'm, um, I'm not great at asking for help. But what she was telling me to do just it didn't help me. You know, it just... I, can, I could see what she was trying to do having me, when something started, like when a video started, she would, for example, if I've got a pen in my hand, I would have to pick up the pen and I'd be, have to touch the pen and, and think to myself, what does this feel like? It's plastic, it's long, it's cold. Uh, and that was supposed to kind of bring me back to a reality or touch table and say, right, I'm here. I'm... That didn't help one bit. That did not stop the videos. That didn't do anything for me. Um, so in the end, I, I stopped, stopped any treatment because it just wasn't helping and ended up really starting to work, then starting listening to positive um, – it wasn't podcasts really at the time, but positive videos – or starting to read books. And I actually started uh, looking into why my brain was doing this, you know, why my mind was doing it. And once I actually understood why this was happening, it it kind of started to get better. Mm. I think I just need to know why. Why is this happening? I I, I kept trying to explain to the psychologist and the psychiatrist or whoever they were, I know this is real. You know, I I know that this is my mind. I'm aware of what's happening to me, but why is it happening? Yeah. Just tell me a reason why. What is it that's triggered this in my head?
0: Mm-hmm. Because
1: once I understand that, I can deal with it. But nobody could tell me. No one could explain it to me. And I started following Joe Dispenza, and that was just like, um, things just become clearer, and even now, I will. If I start to feel a bit overwhelmed, I will go back and listen, even just to one talk of his. You know, to make it right, I've got this. It's it's because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah,
0: is that the guy who wrote the book? You are the placebo. Was he, he paralyzed and he he cured, yes, he cured yeah. himself? Yeah, yeah. Doctor Joe Dispenza. Yeah, that, I have read one of his books. It's called mm. You Are the Placebo, where he goes through yeah. yeah his experience. Yeah, th- that's amazing. So I was going to ask you, what was it that you read that, you know, yeah. made that it, click?
1: He's, he's wrote a lot of books and, and he does lots of videos and um you know I did spend a long time and then obviously once you start watching one video it leads you on to another one and and there's a man and I can't remember his name, um, but he he does like cold water therapy. Uh, I've forgotten his name, he's got a beard. Ice Hoff, Iceman Hoff. That's him, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And just even listening to him and listening to other people who have overcome, there was another guy who'd completely overcome cancer without any treatment and it it just, just listening to them and having reasons why things happen or why you feel, that's what I need. I just need to know why Mm -hmm. and I can deal with it then. Mm. it's that not knowing for me I need to know exactly what's happening it's like if I if I went to the dentist I want to know what they're doing yeah right I'm going to give you the injection I'm going to put this in I'm going to I, I want to know what they're doing yeah you know <laughs> yeah
0: I think that is big part of the reason that I wanted to start this podcast you know because everyone's different
1: and mm. everyone yeah you
0: know, that I have spoken to pretty much so far are people that I know or that I've met
1: Mm. and, Mm.
0: and actually everyone has gone through stuff. Some people have gone through more than others. Okay. Yeah, (laughs) obviously. Um, But everyone deals with it in a different way. And I think that's, what's great. You know, someone might listen to this and hear, hear some of the things that you've been through and they might, you know, get hope or think, Actually yeah that really resonates with me or yeah. have a breakthrough just hearing hearing your story. So that's the power isn't yeah. it of sharing Exactly. Your yeah. story. What was it that led you to join the police because I know you're saying
1: that you I wish you had No it? idea. I honestly <laughs> have no idea. i had had Lucy and I was flying for Virgin, Virgin Atlantic at the time. And when she was 9 months old I went back to work and ne- I needed to go back to work. Um and after maybe six months, I realised that it was just too difficult being away three, four nights a week because obviously it's all long haul. At the time, it wasn't like, like now they do lots of very quick turnarounds, one night home. It wasn't like that. I was away three, four nights, which, you know, for me <laughs> was good in one respect. I got to just be Helen again. I could go to sleep, I got full night's sleep, I could go shopping, I didn't I didn't have to think about anybody but me. Um, which may sound quite selfish, but I just needed that at the time.
0: Yeah. It However, I was
1: also yeah, I was also very conscious that my husband was at home with Lucy and his mum used to come and stay at our house whilst I was away, uh, before she went into nursery school. So um, it, it was just, in the end, it was just too difficult to be away. And why I thought joining the police and doing shift work would be any easier, I do not know. I just, they just were recruiting. I filled in an application form. It took about four months to go through the whole process. It was quite, it was quite an intensive process it wasn't something it wasn't a lifelong dream to be in the police like some people in my when I first joined in my class were like that's all they'd ever wanted to do I think because I wasn't actually that bothered whether I got the job or not I just (laughs) sailed through it (laughs) I just sailed through I would never have applied again if I'd have failed I just you know it's not something I would have done again but I just got through and I remember on day one I was sat sat in this room with about 30 other people in a big semicircle. And I just it just suddenly dawned on me and I thought, what am I doing here? Why what why am I sat in this room joining the police? You know, and I'd got my nine months of training ahead of me with an 18 month old baby or 15 month old baby. And I just thought, what am I doing? And um, I never, I've never loved it, regardless of what I've done, you know. And, and obviously, when you first join, the training's really difficult. And then you're out on response. And I, I worked in the city centre of Manchester. So I was working weekend nights, rolling around the floor. I'd never been in a fight in my life. No one had ever punched me, no one had ever touched me, hit me. And so talk about a shock to the system. And I was rolling around with six-foot men on the floor who, who were trying to bite my face and spitting at me. And in the most frightening situations, I, I, can't, I can't believe I was there. I mean, I'm only five-foot-two, five-foot-two-and-a-half. And, a half. and I, I've been, you know, I've been in, surrounded surrounded by huge men and there's me with my baton out literally shouting get back like ready to hit them if they come near me Mm. and I just I, I don't I don't know what possessed me I've never enjoyed ever arresting anyone I think you'll have some police officers who just love it they think it's the best thing ever locking someone up and for me taking away someone's liberty always should be a last resort you know it's it's not something to be taken lightly you know to think that it's regardless of what they've done you you don't you never know the full story you never know you never know the other side of of what you think has happened mm. and so I've always tried never to judge anyone I've, I've arrested I tr- I've always treated them with respect even if they've punched me or spit at me I've always treated them as i would want to be treated Mm -hmm. and and explain to them what was happening um so yeah it's it's i was glad when i kind of got out of out of the response role and and into a more normal office type based job (laughs) where people didn't want to kill me um but then then you are faced with different challenges you know so I won't be sorry when I eventually do leave. And what was it like as a woman in
0: the force, joining the force? You know, we're talking, what, 12, 13 years ago?
1: 2008. Yeah, I joined, 2008. So, Um, I've never, I can hand on heart say I've never experienced any kind of Uh, what's the word sexism um, harassment sexual harassment I've never ever experienced it I have never seen it Mm. I've never seen it and um, it's not something that I would have tolerated anyway I've I've just I've for me I've just felt like a police officer and that's it it's never been an issue Mm. you know it's never been an issue I I You know, there's been some nights, there's one particular night where I was grappling with a guy who must have been about six foot five. And one of my colleagues, who was a man, who who was about six five himself, was hold of some girl who was about five foot, you know, and I'm there absolutely petrified trying to keep hold of a a guy who was telling me what he was going to do to me. A, my male colleague had some girl at five foot just, just stood with her, you know, so it's, I've always just gone into a situation and dealt with it and never thought about the fact that I'm female or, and I've never felt like it mattered, mm. you know, mm-hmm. never felt like it was an issue. Yeah. I'm sure there's some women in the police who've had very different experiences but I can't say I have. Well that's good to hear yeah you know it's not the answer I was
0: expecting Mm. (laughs) but I'm really pleased that that was your experience. Yeah you mentioned that before you got into the police you were flying with Virgin Atlantic, Virgin, and think, yeah. Because I know that you've written a book, and I remember reading the bit where you said that when you first kind of applied to work in that industry, yeah. um, and your mum, when your mum found out that you got oh, yeah. job, she was so mm. proud, and she you know, yeah told everyone. Could you tell that story? Because it's so
1: wonderful. Yeah. So it was back in 1997, and I just finished. I finished my A levels in 1996. I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I didn't want to go to university. I could have gone, but it just wasn't just didn't seem right. I I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to maybe do nursing. So when I finished sixth form, I went and did uh, <laughs> worked at the local hospital on a surgical unit on nights uh, as an auxiliary nurse and I did that until the following summer I started applying to to work for the airlines um in in 97 and I had a couple of interviews and one interview uh was with Britannia Airways uh, which is now Tui it, you know it went to Thompson's and then Tui and uh, the interview was at Gatwick at the Hilton at Gatwick and my dad drove me down and uh, it was an all-day assessment and it was kind of if you got through each stage, and if you got through each stage, you stayed longer that day. So by the end of it, there were only about six or seven of us left, and um, I, and I was told that day I'd got the job, and I could work from Manchester. And so obviously, my poor dad had been sat there from like eight in the morning. This is like five in the afternoon in the in the Gat, Hilton Gatwick car park, and I think he nearly died when it was like twenty odd pounds at the at the time parking and. So anyway, no, we drove home, and um, I came through the back door of our house, and um, my mum was in the kitchen, and I said, "I got it, I've got the job," and she was just, she was just shouting, "Oh, Ellie, Ellie!" and like hugging it, and ran out of the back door and ran next door to our elderly neighbours, who we were very, very good friends with, running their house. Shouting, she's got it, she's got the job, and. She was so, so excited, so proud. I mean, I'd only been on a plane once. So again, applying for something I didn't even know if I'd be all right. I'd only been on a plane once. And I was from a small town, small, really small place. And people just didn't leave. People didn't do that. And it was, we didn't know anyone else who who had that job. And for my mum, she was just so, she just could not believe it um and it was well, that moment you know because obviously I can see that in my mind and that moment will always stay with me um it was just so amazing mm. uh, yeah yeah it, it was great
0: I can <laughs> you tell that so well I mean I feel as though I'm almost there and I can see yeah. I think that kind of Proud mum, you know, so proud that they just, you know, want to explode that their yeah, daughter yeah. has, you know, she just, yeah, I can really feel the the emotion. It's almost like I can see the look on her face. Your work in that industry led you to eventually to Virgin Atlantic, and then you worked yeah. closely with Richard Branson. And yeah. I think yeah. that you said that that really um inspired you in terms of entrepreneur yeah life and you know gave you that yeah
1: push. I um yeah I, I stayed. I went I went to a couple of different airlines and, and eventually worked at, at Virgin I mean Virgin was the um Virgin was definitely the the airline everybody wanted to work for you know coming up to 2000 um it was, it was seen as extremely glamorous and, um, and, and I got the job and I had to work from London and I was on the promotions team for quite a while. So you, you, I worked with Richard for a couple of years quite closely and now I just think, goodness, I, I really didn't take advantage of, of the situation. Like now I'd be chewing his ear off, you know. Um, but at the time it was just fun. He, was, he, he, is, what, he is what you see. There is no other side to him. That the person that we all see on the television on interviews, it that's who he is. There's there's no difference, you know. And some people love him, some people hate him, but he is a genuinely lovely man, you know, who wants to make a difference. Obviously, when you're around people uh, who who are so inspirational and and so driven, you it kind of just rubs off, and you just start thinking like that, and and you hear things and. And I kind of, it was at that point I knew there was more for me. I had no idea what. I didn't didn't know where to start, but I knew there was more for me. Mm. I, I knew that having a job wasn't what I wanted I mean it took a really long time to started my own business really so it took a really long it was another 20 you know 20 years 18 years until I took that leap but I always knew that in me was was something else something more but it just wasn't the right time
0: you talk in in your book about your childhood and you know mm. it, that it was, you know, idyllic, and how you know your family now joke that you kind of grew up in a gingerbread house. Yeah. And everything was, <laughs> everything was perfect, and yeah, you you had a wonderful mm. relationship with with your mum and dad. Do
1: you want to share a little <laughs> yeah. bit about that? Yeah. So like you said, I had I honestly had the most amazing childhood, and now I kind of think, do you get do you get both? You know, do you get an amazing childhood and a wonderful relationship? and a long relationship with your parents forever. You know, I, I kind of, sometimes I think I looked out, you know, and that was it, my 20 years was done. Um, but I had a wonderful, I've got one sister, we had a brilliant childhood. I can't, there is nothing in my childhood I would look back on and think that was horrible or that was not a great situation. It just didn't happen. I think we were very cocooned, Catherine and I, you know, my mum and dad were extremely protective, and I see that in me with my daughter. And I think it's it's even worse for my daughter because with me being in the police and seeing all the horrendous things, I'm even more heightened to um, to, to things that could happen to her. Um, so I, I did. I had I had a great time. A very reserved childhood. Very reserved upbringing. Um, we weren't even allowed to watch things like EastEnders, you know, because my dad felt it was too violent. So I never saw any violence. We weren't, I didn't hear anything, um, that children shouldn't hear. Um, and then, like you said, I, I, I got the job with the airlines in summer, July, 1997. Um, I met, met my husband a week before I went training. I was 19 and it was whilst I was training with Britannia, um, for the six weeks that halfway through that I got a call from my dad one night just to say your mum's not well she's uh we were shopping at, at Asda and she's just started talking utter rubbish and collapsed so they've taken her to the hospital but she's okay she's back home there's nothing to worry about she had some kind of seizure I was I was really concerned but my dad reassured me and um after I, I, I had the graduation and my mum and dad and my sister came down for that. To, it was at East Midlands Airport. And um, again, that was a day that my mum was just beside herself. You know, she was so proud. First time seeing me in this horrendous, horrible uniform, <laughs> looking back. And, um, you know, she, she was just overwhelmed. And uh, I started flying out of Manchester Airport. And it was in maybe the September, October And um, I came back from a flight and there was notes to ring my grandma. So I rang my grandma and I knew that it was my mum. And she said, your dad's on on his way for you. Your mum's not been well. But again, she was playing it down. My dad picked me up and he said, "Um, your mum's got a brain tumour. And I just absolutely fell apart in the car. For some reason, for a few years prior to that, I'd had it was almost like a fear of, of brain tumours. And I, have, I don't know where that had come from. I don't, I don't, I'd obviously heard something or seen something as a teenager that, and it had stuck in my head. So this was almost like my worst nightmare coming true. And my dad said, look, it's right at the back of the head. They're going to give us some medication. They think it could have been there. And for some reason, it's just triggering these fits because she had like a seizure, he said, you know, everything's going to be fine. So my mum was okay. You know, she didn't have another fit for a little while. And then on the 1st of December, um, she had a really bad fit and the ambulance came and um, she never, she never came back home. That was the day she left. She never came back home and she was rushed to the hospital. And um, eventually they did another brain scan, and the, the doctors. My, my sister was was away with uh, with school at the time. And the doctor said to my dad and I, "She's got a, a brain tumor, but it's right at, at the front of her brain." Um, now we knew from like the two months before when she'd had the scan, there was nothing there. Nothing. There wasn't a second tumor, so we knew this was rapid. To to you know. Uh, and she was completely unconscious with my mum. So they rushed her to um, the neuro unit um, in, in Preston and she was put onto a ventilator and all sorts of things coming out of her head to release the pressure. Um, it, it was absolutely horrific. And things happened that night that uh, will never leave me and, and it's not anything I've ever talked about, but things that I heard being said by the nurses you know, I, I couldn't even tell you, but it was awful. And um, a couple of days later, they decided to operate and they took my mum to theatre and my dad and I were at home and, and the hospital was around 40 minutes from us. I wanted to go, um, but I didn't, I didn't drive at the time. i, I I passed my test, but I didn't I didn't have a car. So and my dad said, look, there's no point going because she's going to be in theatre for like five hours. They'll ring us and we'll go on after she's out. Anyway, within an hour, we got a call to say, can you come on? So we both knew, we both knew that things were bad. So we arrived at the hospital and the consultant took us into a room and said, um, I'm really sorry, she's got a few months to live. The, the tumor's growing out of the centre of her brain. If I removed it, it would grow back. Um, there's absolutely nothing we can do. I don't remove it because it will paralyse her down the left-hand side. Um, I'm, I'm, That's it. And she was uh, 43. And uh, I kind of came out of the room. I, I went into tunnel vision, sat there. And just in absolute disbelief and, and my dad just asked a couple of sensible questions you know kind of where do we go from here what will happen because he was very practical like that and um so this was about the third or fourth of December and when we left the hospital he all my dad said was I didn't want to hear that and that was it you know he he, he didn't say very much he, he was very quite a reserved person you know didn't show his feelings very well and um so my mum was moved to a community hospital um about half a mile from where we lived which was lovely and uh she she was completely bed bound she she didn't know she changed she changed the tumor had completely changed I mean her head was all swollen a big lump where the tumor was and it was just getting bigger and bigger and. Um, She she didn't, she knew us, but she had no, she wasn't, she wasn't my mum. She wasn't the same person. She, that, that had gone, you know, but the one thing I'm grateful for is she wasn't frightened or worried. It's almost like she didn't know and she was just quite happy Mm. to, to be there. And, you know, there were were no times where she was in pain or distressed or anything like that. Uh, And then um, on the 5th of February um, I went down to the hospital I had a car by them and I went down to the hospital around 10.30 in the morning and um, opened the door and knew I knew she was about to die I knew instantly and I rang my dad and, and said you need to come down now and I sat with her and was just holding her hand and it's just she just she just was breathing very sporadically and I was just kissing her hand and, um, and I rang my dad again. I said, you really need to get here. Um, and he was messing about in the shower, you know, it was like I was losing my temper with him. And then he arrived, the handle of the door went down in the bedroom and she just died. She just took her last breath. And as she died, the, the tumour just, it must have just burst or bled and her head went down. But the weird thing was, as she died, I felt this overwhelming, like, sense of, as if something had just hit me, you know, like, almost what was left of her just just came to me, it just, you know, it it was a really strange sensation, I just felt this huge pressure on me as she died, and um, it, it was, it was just, horrendous my sister was at school um and we stayed there for 10-15 minutes and then I drove home uh, my dad went and got my sister and and you know I didn't I cried when she died and then I kind of pulled myself together and got on and I, and I don't remember crying then don't remember being really emotional for a very very long time
0: why do you think that was, or what? And then, what was it like when, when it did come out, eventually, like the grief?
1: Yeah, it it probably it was probably around twelve months later, and I actually felt like I'd run into a brick wall. It physically hurt, you know it. It just hit me, uh, and it probably was around twelve months after. I don't know why. I, I think because my dad was very matter-of-fact and he was very practical. He didn't show any emotion. I never once saw my dad cry. Never, I've ne- never once saw him cry. And Even after your mum died? No, 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 nothing. He was just very organised, you know. He had the funeral director phone numbers in his wallet and in his uh, diary, you know, he's just... So I don't think I felt... I don't think I felt I could be a gibbering wreck. My sister is like the opposite to me. Catherine just is very emotional, constantly crying, constantly crying. You know, I'm trying to think of something a few weeks ago and I messaged her uh, and she was just like, I'm, I'm crying my eyes out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> She's constantly crying. and very, very over-emotional, whereas I'm very quite like my dad quite reserved and and I just I don't I just got on I just I've always been very much it is what it is and you can either deal with it it's not going to change so you have to deal with it and I've always faced up to everything you know I've, I've it's like going back to needing to know exactly what's happening you know, at each point some you know, if I'm having a tooth out, I need to know what's happening. I need to know every detail and I and, and need to face it because then I know what I'm dealing with. And and I think it was it was just like that. I just just got on. Just got on with things. Um and when it did hit me, I did I don't think I realized it was because of my mum. I just thought I was feeling a bit down or um yeah I I don't know I just I just remember being quite depressed or feeling quite depressed but not really knowing and not really wanting to admit it and also if you were feeling like that after after someone had died then you you just uh it's almost accepted but just to kind of come out of nowhere feeling depressed it, it felt a bit odd so I kept it to myself and and i think that's what eventually keeping all these things to myself every time something happened and not really showing emotion came out with the ptsd even Mm. all those years later Mm. it's almost like things just built up built up built up built up till till my brain said that is it i can't deal anymore
0: Mm. yeah Um, that's what i was gonna ask you um exactly like uh, i think do you think that was all a contributory contributory factor? Yeah, definitely,
1: definitely. And so what
0: would you say, you know, if you could talk to your younger self, you know, about dealing with the traumas Mm. that you got dealt with, you know, what would you say to yourself about how you
1: might deal with it? I think um, think some of it was taken out of my hands. Like my dad as I said, he was, he just, we just didn't talk about my mom. We didn't talk about our feelings or, you know, my dad, I don't think my dad could do it because he didn't want to let go. He didn't want to break down. So everything was very clinical, you know, just no feeling in anything. Um, So I don't know whether I could have changed it at the time. Even I don't feel I had anyone to. I didn't feel I had anyone to offload on Mm. where I could have sat there and and be and cried or expressed how I was feeling. And I think I was quite numb. I mean, I had gone from having this amazing life and then it was literally ripped away from us. And, I don't think I could quite process it. I, I don't think I could quite believe it. I, I was very, very numb and I had no idea how to handle it. I'd, I'd never had to deal with anything. I'd never really had to deal with grief or I'd never, I'd never dealt with anything bad happening. Mm. So I don't, think I, knew, I don't think I knew what to do.
0: Which which I think seems like even more ironic, as you say, you know, to end up working as a family liaison officer when yeah. your whole job is dealing with grief and really kind of traumatising situations. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if there's some, you know, subconscious... Go, you know, act going on there that you're like, okay, well, you know, this is you're just putting yourself back in that situation of,
1: you know, maybe grieving, yeah, yeah, um, and also help. I think, I think, I almost felt like I could understand grief. You know, I could empathize with the people. I've never had anybody, thank God, murdered close to me but I understand grief and I've always been quite a people person and been able to kind of ad- adapt and t- to how-, how they are. Mm. So I think I-, I felt like I could help. You know, I felt like I could maybe give something and, and help mm. and-, and maybe subconsciously I was trying to help myself mm. without really realising it. Mm. yeah yeah you're kind
0: of offering the support to other families that you didn't get I didn't
1: get yeah exactly that's exactly right I didn't get any support or any help and I don't know if I would have taken it had had it been offered I'm not that kind of person you know
0: um it doesn't sound like you know that wasn't modeled to you growing up you know to ask mm. for help or to ask for support because it was a kind of you know just get on with it and everything's yeah. going to be all right and that's that's what you learned growing up yeah. so the idea of reaching out to ask for to help you you wouldn't have ever
1: seen that no no I never no there's nothing like that i never had to ask for help really no Everything was, were very
0: sheltered. Another part of your story, you also had your own
1: brain issues. I mean, do you mm-hmm.
0: want to, could you talk a bit about yeah,
1: that? Yeah, so when it was on, I'd started having some headaches and well, I've had two issues with my brain. Um, started having headaches in 2008, um, over maybe a month and they were quite bad. And I went to the doctors, I had private health care the doctor was great and, and I said, look, and I was a bit concerned and he said, look, to put your mind at rest because your mum had a brain tumour. Let's, um, let's get a brain scan. You know, we'll go through the primary health care. Let's go and get a brain scan we see this consultant. So within two days, there I am in the hospital and saw this consultant and told him and he did all these tests and he said, I don't think we'll find anything. And, and by the time I'd seen the, cons- got to the consultant, so literally only in the space of three or four days, I'd stopped having the headaches <laughs> that I'd been having on a regular basis. And, um, and I didn't have any after that. And uh, he said, I don't think we'll find anything, you know, but let's just do it. Let's just do the brain scan to put your mind at rest. That's what everyone kept saying, to put your mind at rest. So two days later, it was Lucy's second birthday, so 2008. And uh, I had to go. It was about five o'clock at night, my appointment. So I said to Steve, I'll just go. It's fine. And he said, no, I'll come with you just in case. So I said, OK, so we all go into the room. Lucy sat on the floor playing. And when I walked into the room, on the screen in front of me was a brain, the picture of my brain. And I'd seen that picture before. Exactly the same as my mum's brain scan. I'd seen it before. And I just said, I've got a brain tumor, haven't I? And, he, and Steve just, I've never seen him lost for words. He just looked at me, and the consultant just sat there in disbelief himself. And he said, I'm so sorry. I just didn't expect that at all. And for about 30 seconds, I cried. And then, and then again, I just completely pulled myself together and said, "Right, okay, so what do we do? What do you think?" And he said, "It doesn't look cancerous to me." He said, "But I'm referring you to um, Mr. Ganalingam at the Alexandra. He's an expert in keyhole brain surgery uh, around the world." The day after. There I was with Mr. Ganalingam. We did multiple brain scans. They put dye through my brain, all sorts of different tests. And basically he said, and I mean, I was absolutely petrified. I was petrified. My sister was just in pieces. <laughs> my dad was, again, when I rang him and said, Dad, I've got a brain tumour. He just said, oh, Ellie. And that was it. Really, you know, like right, okay. Like whereas my sister was just in hysterics and um, I went and, and when it once all the tests were complete, he said, I this isn't cancerous. This could have been there your whole life. Mm. He said, I don't know if it is a complete tumour. He said, unless I went into your brain which I don't want to do because there is nothing wrong with you. You're not even having headaches. There was like, they did all the movements, you know, and the left and the right side. There's, he said, there is nothing wrong with you. There's nothing telling me you've got something wrong with you. He said, I think what we do is every three months we scan you. If you have any issues at all, you straight back. So for two years, every three months, I went and had these brain scans and it never, ever changed. And even to this day, he took wood. And my last brain scan was October last year. It's never changed. Whatever this is, but the fact it was just in the exact same place as my mum's was uncanny.
0: Mm.
1: And Uncanny. Did, they,
0: did the doctors say that there
1: could be any link there? No, they said it can't be hereditary. Okay. That's what they said. Again, it's one of those things you think, is it? But it said you could have been dropped when you were a baby. (laughs) Now, when I was seven, I was run over by a car and I hit, I know, I I hit, I knocked the bumper, the number plate and broke a headlight with my head of this car. And I think it could be from then. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and I didn't even think at the time to mention that. It only occurred to me ages and ages later that it probably was when I got run over. I bet that's when it was from, because it was this side of my head. And it's a big bump on my head, but they never even scanned my head on my brain at the time. But uh, that must be what, what did it, I think. <laughs> I think what <well,
0: laughs> well, I also find slightly funny about that is in terms of your like idyllic childhood you didn't mention yeah, I forgot that you got run it. over.
1: <laughs> I forget I forget about it. I forget it only every now and again comes back to me. Uh yeah I was I was crossing a road with my cousin. Again this it was it was so out of character for my mum to allow me to go to the shop with my cousin. Like just for her to allow me to now I was supposed to be crossing the road at this zebra crossing or a pelican crossing and my cousin didn't and we got I remember really vividly we got halfway across the road and I didn't think I could make it across before this car came. so I went back but didn't think to look at the what was coming behind me oh I know uh, and then the woman tried to put me in her car to drive me home to my back to my auntie's house where my mum was, and I was kicking and punching it because had been it had been drummed into me never ever ever get in a car with someone you don't know, and I was fighting. I would not get in this car with this woman. Like kick. I, re- I remember holding onto the car outside and kicking and punching. No way was I getting in that car with her. Um. Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, I, f- I do forget about that uh, I, w- I was run over but I was okay and maybe that's where this thing in my head came from
0: um, and you said that the, you've had two kind of
1: brain yeah. things what's the second thing so the second one was in 2013 at, at work in the police um, I was working uh I, I did for a time I was a uh, what they call a log so any we have quite a lot of events in manchester whether it's football matches protests uh big uh, music events and there's one every year called park life and it goes on for a wee full weekend bank holiday weekend and it's lots of different it's a bit like glastonbury but on a smaller scale and i was logging which means i work with a, a commander on the day so someone who will be in charge of a certain part of of the event and any decision that's made I would log and write the rationale for it. So if you think back to like Hillsborough disaster now, where when they've gone through the court case and they've looked at all the decisions that were made and the rationale as to why at that time, even in hindsight, it was the wrong thing to do. But at that time, this is why I made that decision based on this, this and this, Mm -hmm. which may be the wrong decision, but you couldn't have foreseen. So I, I would... I would work with the commander and and a tactical advisor who would advise that person what to do, you know, what would be the best thing to do. And I would log all the decisions and I would write a rationale. And um, this one particular day, it was boiling hot. I didn't have my hat on uh, because it was so hot. And right in front of me, the police were were bringing this guy out who was off his head on drugs or whatever and he was fighting like I don't know what and he was smacking his head off the floor and there must have been six officers there already however this guy was battering his head so I thought well is first of all he's going to do himself an injury or, or he's going to say that the police have done it so I put my clipboard down that I had and I just, I just literally crouched next to him and held his head just put my hands on his head to stop him lifting it up and keep hitting it all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I saw an officer running towards me with his baton out. Now, our batons are very metal, heavy batons. They would break your arm if you hit with them. And I just saw him, and, and, I, and I remember turning my head away, and next thing I get walloped. And I, I left the floor, and I hit the left side of my head, my ear, on the ground really hard. And then I jumped up like, like I'd been shot. I jumped off the floor. And I remember standing there thinking, am I okay? Am I okay? And and this fight's still ongoing. You know, there's people around it. No one's even seen that I've been hit. And I, and I said to the commander, he has just hit me with the baton. And he said, are you okay? And I said, I don't know. And for some reason, I never even logged this on on the on the on the page and and after and he said do you want to go and see the medics and I said no probably the worst worst thing I did that day I said no it's okay and my head was like I'd I'd been hit really hard but I was almost like numb I just I didn't really know what was happening and after about 30 minutes I started with the most horrific pains in my head And the tech advisor said to me, I've got some Nurofen in the car. And I said, all right. So we went to his car. He had two Nurofen. And then luckily within the next half hour, we got stubbed down. And, uh, you know, it was like eight o'clock at night by this point. And we we were going home ready for the next day. And uh, I remember feeling super poorly. And it it was really a lovely day. And I got in the car in a full uniform body armor i never took anything off i just needed to get home and i drove all the way home and they're having a barbecue at my house because it was so warm and i just said i'm going to bed i've been hit around the head and i woke up at one in the morning and i had no use of the left side of my body i was completely paralyzed down my left side and obviously, rushed to. Luckily, our, our local hospital is a, a neuro hospital, and uh, they did full brain scans. And again, I had, I had. Luckily, I had the pictures of my brain already on my phone, which was really useful because then they could compare what they were looking at. And and the upshot of it all was that this guy had severed n- the nerves in the right side of my brain. So it's like just above my ear, across. And uh, he'd severed the nerves and, and the, the consultant said, it's going to get worse before it gets better. He said, however, you are uh, one very, very lucky girl. He said, because this is how people die. He said, one hit like that, and that's it, they're gone. He said, within 30 minutes, you could have been dead. And, and it, that's what happened to Natasha Richardson, you know, who was married to Liam Neeson. banged a head, skin accident, was fine for about 30, 40 minutes, and then she died. You know, let I me mean, think. They put her in a coma, but she, she died from that. And then the year after, I the year after I had that injury at the same event, we had a guy die from the same injury. He got hit round, he got hit on that side, on the right side of his head by someone punched. Thirty minutes later, he dropped dead at the event, and it's the same injury. So I was very very lucky. Now, I spent the next nine months in neuro rehab couldn't speak I couldn't m- remember things uh I had no short-term memory I slept all the time uh I couldn't be left on my own because I wouldn't know I'd say put the oven on I'd I'd maybe think I want a coffee I'd put the kettle on I'd sit back down and then a bit later I think I want a coffee and I'd put the kettle on and I had no recollection until I got back to the kettle and I realized it was hot that I, I knew I I knew that my brain wasn't working so I knew I was forgetting things, but even now to this day, I, I have problems with my memory and um, I, I, I do struggle. Like Sometimes you will hear me just stop and, and I've forgotten what I'm saying. It's not as bad as, you know, I'm like 99% better, but it's still there. Um, and, and again, I, I, I was under neuro rehab and they were trying all different things. And uh, in the end, I just thought, this is ridiculous. And I got myself better. So I stopped all treatment. I went to the bingo every day with the old biddies, and I um, I started knitting. I did loads of puzzles. I, I got my own brain working in the end, and then and I couldn't remember much about exact exact details of what had happened. And uh, one day there was a one night there was a police program on, and I never watched police programs. And all of a sudden, the officer in this program said something and it was like a download hit my head and i everything just it, it was just like a, a switch had been pressed and i remembered everything i could speak properly i could i could remember um it just all come back like literally like the nerves because they said the nerves have been severed they'll grow back but it'll be like a millimeter a month and it's like all of a sudden it just it just it just hit and and something just triggered from what I'd watched, something just brought everything back. And um yeah, I do have odd problems now, but I'm I'm more or less better, but it left me with quite severe fibromyalgia, you know, from from the brain trauma. Yeah. Um, which still is is a problem each day. But again, you you just learn to deal with it. And I've you know, tried lots of different things and, and it's it's under control most of the time. But then you have bad days like, like you do with everything. Um, oh but, yeah, that was pretty, tr- that was pretty horrendous. Yeah. And, and I, actually, I actually left the police in 2014 and went back to Virgin Atlantic for, for a year. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, because uh, basically... The officer who'd done it, I I never set out to, um, you know, there was no blame attributed from me. I, I didn't pursue any kind of complaint or anything like that. But what really riled me was the officers involved, the six officers that were there at the time and the guy that hit me, I didn't know them. They were from another division. They blatantly lied and, I mean, pretty much denied it. And uh, they all wrote, You could have, they were like carbon copy statements. And even the commander that I was working with on the day played down what I'd told him, you know. And that's why now I think, why didn't I write it in the log? Why didn't I seek medical? It was almost like I had to prove I'd got this traumatic brain injury (laughs) that I was making it up. And that's how the police made me feel like I was making up this. And, and tried to, I ended up with threatening emails from HR basically saying if I wasn't back in work in six weeks, they would half my pay uh, or I'd be put on a disciplinary action. i I've, I've not even been off sick for like the 12 months before that. I was going to be, I mean, disciplinary action. And the thing was, when they were sending me these emails, I couldn't read them. I could read the first line, but by the time I got to the second line, I didn't even know what the first line had said. And they weren't expected me to go back to work. And, and, and to cut a long story short, in the end, my husband emailed the chief constable uh, at the time and, um, and I said what to say. And within 20 minutes, he was on the phone. And later that day, he was at my house and, and one of the uh, senior officers. And he could not believe what he was seeing. He couldn't. He just could not believe what what had happened. What I was being, how I was being treated. But by this point, I was that disillusioned and angry, and with the police that I couldn't even consider going back. I knew I was leaving. I was. I, I just felt like I had. I had provided them with being a brilliant officer always the first one in always the last one to leave going above and beyond all the time and when it came down to it I was just a number that no one gave a shit about and there was no way I was working for them anymore and and the chief constable said please let me try and sort it and I said I appreciate that but no and once I got better um I I emailed Virgin Atlantic and and literally pretty much walked back into a job. And so for 12 months, I went back flying and um, it was great. It was was really what I needed. I kind of needed to put that to bed. I didn't realise it when I joined again. I, I expected to stay there, but I actually feel like I needed to put it to bed. I needed to know... I'd made the right decision leaving when I did, mm. and I had. Mm. It was great, but it was too much for me, being away, and I wasn't as young as I was the first time <laughs> round. And then I, unexpectedly, I got a phone call from the Chief Constable's secretary one day, and she said, Helen, uh, Mr Fahey has, has nominated you for an award. I can't even tell you what the award was for. I think it was made up. Um, we've, got, we've got an award ceremony. Um, whenever it was, would you come? And I said, yeah. And when I went to the award ceremony, he took me to one side and said, please, will you come back? Will you consider coming back? Come back in as if you'd never left. Um, you know, you, you, you come in at the same salary, choose where you want to work, do whatever. He said, I, I want to make it right. And I knew it was the right thing to do at the time. And, and, and I did, and I went back um so I had a year off the police I know and and now I do that people said oh you do why would you come back and, <laughs> and I don't know and I don't have an answer
0: I I think what a lot of people might be wondering hearing you share that story is <laughs> did you ever feel like you wanted to pursue the officers that
1: had lied you know because that it, it seemed very unfair <clears throat> It was really difficult because uh, the officer, I got a copy of everything. So I got a copy of all the statements and I got a copy of his record. And funnily enough, he should never have been working that day because he was out of date on what they call his OST, which is your officer safety training. So the fact actually being out on the streets, you have to be in date of uh, like the, the regulations. It's like a yearly checkup of how to use your handcuffs what restraints are acceptable you know if you're going to hit somebody where should you hit them and what you know what's going to keep cause the least damage you know it's just knowing the laws around everything he wasn't mm-hmm. even in date and the oh, and the not <clears throat> on the head is the clue don't hit Not on, on the head, head. <laughs> that's that's like the last place you should ever hit anyone yeah and and the day after he hit me he was on an officer safety training course which was quite funny um i did Once I left, I did try, I spoke to a solicitor, and again, it was their word against mine. Yet no one could explain then how I went to work absolutely fine and came home with a traumatic brain injury. It was just, well, well, that's, you know, it's it's your word against, against his. I was never after the officer. He just made a bad decision. And I don't know what he was trying to do. I don't know if he was just one of them overzealous officers and maybe saw, thought he saw something that wasn't happening. Maybe didn't know recognise me and I was just some woman. Oh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, there could be a hundred reasons why he did what he did, but um, yeah. Have you, have you ever seen him again? No, I've never seen him. It was from a completely different division. So I've never seen him. I, I, I've got his face in front of me right now. You know, I'll never forget what he looked like. Um, but, yeah, I, I, had to, I had to put that to bed. You know, I had to kind of let that go. And I think going back to the police on my terms and having a choice of where did I want to work, what did I want to do, I felt like I'd come out on top. It was my decision then. It wasn't that I had to go back to work. I decided that's what I would do. And, um, yeah, and and here I still am. Mm. <laughs> well,
0: I mean, big respect to you for being able to do that. And, I mean, just, mm. again, the, the theme there of, like, you kind of taking control of your own recovery. Um, yeah. Is, you know, I don't think many people could do that but you know you, no. you, you recognize that whatever was being suggested or tried wasn't working for you and you thought no I'm gonna mm. I'm gonna do this and I'm you know you took the step yeah yourself.
1: yeah I'm quite ai uh, I can't be doing with anything airy fairy and oh let's just try this and let's lie down and picture this beach in your mind I'm, no it's not for me no, that will not help. Lie down, picturing a beach. I mean, that doesn't help my brain recover. You know, um, I just don't have time for every fairy stuff. I, yes. I need, <laughs> I just need to get on and do it. Yeah. So <laughs> something practical, something that I can physically see, like going to the bingo. Probably lost a fortune at the bingo because <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't hit the numbers when he said that twenty six. By the time I'd found twenty six, he'd gone on three numbers. But <laughs> over time, so I never won anything, but it made my brain work. And over time, and I, I had to walk there, and then I picked Lucy up on the way back. So bingo finished just before school, and uh, finished. So, but even walking to to the bingo, like I struggled crossing roads, and because I'd, I'd get to the edge of the road and I'd look left and right, but then I couldn't remember whether there was anything coming the other way. So it was like some kind of lunatic shaking my head, like checking, is anything coming? Because I couldn't trust myself. I knew I couldn't trust my judgment. And that was really hard Mm
0: -hmm. because
1: I was always, you know, I I couldn't do one thing. And because I'd always been a person, especially in the police, where I was having someone talking in my ear, I'd be with a colleague who would be talking, I would be looking and watching and possibly driving you know making decisions while all this is going on I mean I can listen to three or four conversations and know what's being said Uh, my brain allows lets me work like that but at the time when I was recovering I just couldn't do it couldn't do it um and that was really frustrating for me very frustrating
0: yeah I mean I can't I can't actually begin to imagine what that was actually like you know Mm -hmm. I think unless you've lived through that exact situation you know people can't can't imagine what that yeah be. it's
1: it's frightening because you almost you know it's happening yeah. I knew it was happening but I couldn't stop it I couldn't do anything about it I, I knew I couldn't remember I couldn't cross the road
0: and like through through all of these things and I know you know there are there are other things that we've not even touched on but no. I mean through <laughs> Through all, I might have to do a Helen part two. Um, <laughs> through through all of these kind of life experiences and you know difficult times that you've had to mm. go through, what would you say are your sort of biggest lessons, or you know how has that shaped how you approach you know taking care of yourself or mm. your mental health? You know how has that affected
1: you now? I think I I ask or i talk more now about how i feel it's it's learnt. i've learnt that i need to be more open like i will say to my husband now because you know I, I still have quite a lot of bad days and i you know i will say to steve i'm i'm not okay i'm not okay today i'm not okay in my head uh you know I'll, you know i wake up and say, I say i don't feel okay today things are bad so I am a lot more open than I used to be. Um, I'm more, I think I help, I still help myself more by listening to things, by reading, by, you know, taking time for me. Um, and I think it's just made me realise that life is so short and you don't know what's happening and, and therefore I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow what I, what I want to do. I'm going to make sure that we have a nice life going to make sure that we have plenty of money that um lucy will always be okay you know what whatever happens because i'm always afraid of something happening to me or steve that's i can't get away from that i can't no matter how much therapy i have or who i speak to i have a fear of of lucy being left or uh, steve dying or me dying and and i can't stop that feeling and and that's not nice um because people say look you always go to the worst case scenario which i do i always go to the worst case but because for me if i'm ready for that whatever else happens i can deal with that's how i I look at things but it's not that's not healthy because that the worst case doesn't happen but for me on numerous occasions the worst case has happened so i feel like i have to be prepared but I'm learning I feel I just feel like I've I've learned so much there isn't anything that I couldn't deal with or couldn't cope with but I'm just more open you know I've I've learned to be more open i I try to help people as much as I can now I've, I've become you know I, I do I do try and do a lot of charity work and, and I do try and help people so there's a lot of good come from from all of this mm. and um, the, the helping people like is
0: that because you know does that give you something in terms of you know you Mm -hmm. feel like okay what I've done today is you know has been worth it or it's it's, what is it that drives you to to feel that
1: you want to do that I just I feel so very even though everything that's happened (laughs) I feel so very lucky and fortunate like I I have an awful lot um with the business doing so well and I always said that if the business wants the more money I earn the more I would do for other people Mm. and and for me it's about giving back and this is through reading and listening and and being around other people who are like that and and who have the same thoughts as me same ethos and and ethics and so you know I support two charities mainly the homeless helper in Blackpool um, and also a charity in Nairobi called Mission Possible where I, I sponsor children to go to school. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I, I do give them money, I give them funds, I give them my time and, and I just feel it's something that I need to do. I need to feel like I'm helping other people mm. um, because I don't think I could cope with Having lots and lots of money and and no, never giving anything back because you know people just need a helping hand and and I think we we should all do something if you can afford to you know mm. Um so yeah I, I do I do try to do some charity work and I will do more and more the more successful I am mm. I, I will um, do more
0: I think it. It would be weird to not just touch on the business because we've mentioned it a few mm. times, but um, yeah. a lot of people will be wondering, okay, well, what is this business that she's making so much money that she could do all this charity work? <laughs> um, <laughs> do you want to
1: just talk a little bit about what IX is? Yeah, so IX Global is a company where we're, a, we're an educational company uh, and we're a self-betterment company. So we predominantly promote uh, financial education, specifically around the Forex markets and uh, gold markets, where we teach people to trade on those markets. And we also have uh, financial products that you can use um, where you, you don't have to, to learn anything, but you can have them running in the background to help you make money. And it is basically... Um, the financial markets, the products that we have only used to be available to the very, very wealthy. But actually now it's, it's becoming more mainstream. Um, But we don't just want to say, look, I'm going to, you, you can make all this money and then, you know, just, just get on with your life. We believe, and, and I certainly believe that, you you need to be you need to have everything you need to look after your mind body soul because I've seen people earn a lot of money and then very quickly lose it. So predominantly, you you would be introduced to the financial side where you can make money um, whilst you get on with your life and also learn learn trading if that's what you want to do. But also we try to help you with the rest of you. Thank you, Helen. I know I mean, it's been lovely.
0: Your life has been so interesting, <laughs> and I think you know. God people will listen to this and think what a woman you know what a woman to have gone through so much um and like you say you yeah. know that's only part of it but they can they can yeah. always find your book how can they
1: read your book so it's called she's unstoppable um I'm a co-author so there's a number of ladies in there that have had inspirational stories in april i am actually self publishing the book um so it will be in my name uh, but you can find it on Amazon and it's She Is Unstoppable it's a pink cover because um, there is there is one um, like a volume one which is a black cover but mine is the pink cover uh, so you can get it on Amazon and you can download it on Kindle thank you Helen You've no thank wonderful. you it's been lovely <laughs> <laughs> thanks um, Casey okay my love alright sleep well I too. I you too you down